Well, good morning again. I would encourage all of you uh, who were not here last week, uh, or if you were listening online and you did not hear the sermon last week, to go back and listen to it. Uh, I think it'll help give you a better perspective of how I'm leading into this sermon today, but also um, some important things that I discussed uh, at the service then. So in that sermon, uh, I talked about a very polarizing subject in our culture today surrounding abortion. And then I explained that in 2004, the Evangelical Covenant Church, the denomination that we are part of here at Countryside Covenant, uh, passed a resolution uh, from all the local churches uh, that belong to the Covenant Church and uh, made uh, a public resolution for our stance on that particular subject. Essentially, we grieve whenever an abortion takes place, and we also humbly seek God's guidance through prayer, discernment, and scripture to bring restoration and healing and forgiveness, not only for those who have gone through that, but really all the things that we fall short of the glory of God in, right? Because we are imperfect individuals, and we're just trying to do our very best. But in the end of the sermon, I promised that I would give you an example through the life of Jesus of how he encountered a particular issue and how he offered grace and truth in that interaction. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. In the June newsletter, hopefully that you've read, and if you have not, uh, it is available online. We also have some copies uh, in the back uh, hallway if you would like to read the June newsletter, but Mark Worm, our leadership team chair, wrote an article, and in it he referenced John chapter 8 and the story that I'm going to expound on today. For any of you who are reading in your paper Bible this morning, or if you have a church app, you might notice that John chapter 8 in the first portion is either in italicized uh, font or it is in a parentheses. And that is because the earliest known manuscripts that we have for this passage in John is not there from this passage. It's only found in later documented manuscripts. So if you're a life group leader and you're a life group, your homework today is to be able to discuss this particular passage and look at uh, textual criticism and understand how the canon of scripture came to put this particular passage in the Bible and then discuss it among yourselves whether or not that's credible. I'm just kidding. You're not, you don't have to do that. But if you want to geek it out, I think on the sermon slides uh, there are some references uh, for some of those uh, manuscripts. If you'd like to go and do your homework on that, take a screenshot or go back and watch online, then you can copy them. But we have determined through textual criticism as well for people that are way smarter than me that this particular passage we're going to discuss today seems very plausible. It seems that it is in line and fits well within the stories of Jesus and his interactions, that this is a highly probable interaction, even though it is not in the earliest, oldest manuscripts, it's still included in the canon of scripture. So enough of that, but a lot is happening in this passage. And before I get into the passage, I want to tell you a story of my eighth grade year at East Middle School in Leavenworth, which the school um, no longer is standing. It's been demolished, and now it's just an open lot next to the Methodist Church, if you want to go and see it. Anyway, at some point uh, during my childhood, I liked to talk. 
and the talking got me into a lot of trouble in school. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in eighth grade before. It's a very awkward time in our lives, but I had a hard time sitting still and not talking to my neighbors and my class. So in my home economics class, I got into trouble and was sent to the back of the room to sit on a stool and essentially had to use a bookshelf as my desk. After about a week and a half of being back there, because it was permanent, like, Jeremy, you can't sit next to anybody else for the rest of our semester because you're just too talky-talky. And so I had to sit back there a week and a half of being there. There was an announcement on the intercom. Jeremy Bauer, please report to the assistant principal's office. Ah, and then how do all the students react? Ooh, that's right. Jeremy went to the assistant principal's office, sat before the assistant principal. And he said, Jeremy, I want to discuss where you're sitting in the back of the home economics class for this particular teacher. We found some graffiti that was written back there, and all signs point to you. I was like, well, what is this, right? So it wasn't that it was just graffiti, that someone had just taken a, a marker or something and, and also included some profanities, but they had etched something into the wood, like totally legitimately defaced school property with some disparaging remarks about the teacher and some profanity. Well, I told the assistant principal, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. Did he believe me? Of course not because I'm the one that always get in trouble. But I was mad, I was like, I didn't do it. And I tried to plead my case, he said, Jeremy, you've got three options. You can either admit that you did this, fess up to it, be a man, fess up to it. Or you can, uh, and take your punishment, or you can hold to your innocence and still get punished. Or you can plead no contest. Ah, what is this no contest that I've never heard about before? He's like, well, essentially, there is so much evidence stacked against you that you can't possibly defend yourself. Okay, but he's like, it doesn't mean that you're admitting that you didn't do it or that you admitted that you did do it. It just means that there's too much evidence stacked against you. I said, I want that choice. He's like, okay, fine. You've got this many hours of detention, you know, or whatever punishment that I got. And I was mad. I was frustrated. I was angry. Because I did not get justice, I received an injustice, and I was angry, and I was mad, and I walked back up to my classroom feeling very frustrated and mad, and perhaps might have said a few choice things about the situation and my blame and towards the teacher to where I was immediately sent back to the assistant principal's office uh, to be disciplined again. And I quote from the assistant principal, Jeremy, none of this would have ever happened if you would have just shut your mouth in the first place. Follow the directions. No, you wouldn't have been back there. There wouldn't have been any grief feeding. Lot. So all of this would have happened if you just would have followed the rules in the first place. And as I look back at this, I was frustrated. I was angry. That's like blaming the victim. Hey, well, you know, it's your fault. You know, hey, you were doing this and you shouldn't have been there. And it's like, well, look, I, I still didn't do it. Now you're blaming me. And I was really mad. I was angry. I did not get justice. I wanted justice. I did not get it. My daughter, Haven, loves justice. She can sniff out unfairness like nobody's business. She will know if something is unfair, and she will tell you about it. And we tell her, Haven, sometimes life is not fair. And we know that God is going to use her in wonderful ways to expand the kingdom of God in center of justice. And we tell her sometimes it's just really irritating to hear it sometimes in our house. But... There's the story of 
my injustice, and I tell all of you this to tell you this. God cares about justice. He cares about injustice. And we know that there are people, including myself, who follow the rules and we want other people to follow the rules, and when they don't, we are quick to point that out and point out their deficiencies without much grace and love. So, this encounter in John chapter 8, there are some people who are wanting to exact justice and using it as a trap for Jesus. So let us get into chapter 8. They're trying to put Jesus into a trap and either to tell people that he is a fraud, that he is either against the Roman government, or he is just trying to win popularity as a religious teacher, but it's something that they don't like. Starting in verse 2, at dawn, Jesus, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question to trap, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, what are the odds the Pharisees knew that Jesus was going to be in the temple courts teaching at this exact time, at this exact moment? Jesus had been there in the past. He had been teaching there. Pretty good chances that he was going to be here in this particular instance, and they concoct a plan to be able to trap him. The Pharisees disrupt Jesus' teaching. The teachers of the law disrupt the teachings of Jesus. They bring in this dramatic scene. They bring in this woman, dragging her before everybody, where he was forced to witness this event. Knowing Jesus was there teaching something that they didn't like, they put Jesus into a position where he was forced to respond. Now, before we hear how Jesus responds, I want to give you a background of what this whole altercation, this demanding of this woman to be stoned came from. Early on in the Old Testament, even in the Ten Commandments, there was a law, Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Pretty plain and simple. But then we see in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, and I'm going to read the context beforehand. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Anyone who curses his father or mother is to be put to death. Because they have cursed their father and mother. Their blood will be on their own heads. It's Father's Day today, so just remember that, kids. Okay, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, Moses is reiterating this law to the people before they go into the promised land. It says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die, you must purge evil from Israel. Wow, more death sentences, just like the one that we talked about before in Numbers, about the person who worked on the Sabbath. 
You want to curse your father and mother, you're going to be put to death. You want to commit adultery, you're going to be put to death. Some pretty hefty penalties. So we have to assume that this particular rule, this law, this guideline is important if it has capital punishment attached to it. It's a big deal. It was so important that there must be a consequence associated for that sin. So the question is, if it was such a big deal, where was the man? Where was the man in all this? It seems that if this was such a big deal and that there was going to be justice executed against this woman, certainly the man should be involved as well because that's what the law said. Both parties were to be put to death. So apparently these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, were only focusing on one particular aspect of this law, and now they're trying to trap Jesus in the middle of this. We don't know where the man was. We don't even know who the man was either. But we know that the accusation of this particular sin, when it says she was caught in the act of adultery without getting into details, they must have been in a position where both parties were there. They would have been seen. And so why only the woman was drugged before the people? But they did not bring this other person forward to receive the punishment that this woman also deserved. Now, the reason why they were testing Jesus is because if Jesus would have responded with a, yes, go ahead and kill her, he would have been taking on capital punishment into his own hands which was removed from the Jewish people during the time of the Roman occupation, that only Romans could exact capital punishment for someone's actions. And that's why Jesus was killed by the Romans and not the Jews, because the Jews were not allowed to carry out that execution themselves. So if Jesus would have said, yes, kill this woman, they could have said, aha, he's going against the Roman authorities. Now we can trap him and now we can get him in trouble and maybe put him to death. But if Jesus would have responded, no, 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 don't, don't kill her. You guys, we're, it's okay, don't, don't kill her, don't do this. Then people would have said, aha, look, Jesus doesn't care about the law of Moses. How can he be trusted as a good teacher if he doesn't even know the law? Why is he not seeking justice as God has demanded? So Jesus responds in a way that disarms everybody. But we see this in politics. Anybody ever watching a politician being interviewed by a reporter, they never answer the question they're asked. They always answer the question they aren't asked and the one that they think they should have been asked. It's to get away from answering the question to be able to hold them to a particular position. Apologists do this well, people who are defending the Christian faith. The questions that are posed to them are a trap in a sense that it is forcing them to answer one way or another. In any hot-button uh, hot uh, cultural war issue out there, people have asked me, hey, Jeremy, what do you think about this? Hey, Jeremy, is it right to do this? Hey, Jeremy, is it a sin for this? So, for instance, last week, hey, Jeremy, is abortion a sin? 
By saying yes, I could say, well, I could say yes, and then I would be deemed a complete uh, conservative uh, person who must not care about women's rights and who hates women and, you know, is just this fundamentalist Christian, right? But if I were to say, no, it's not a sin, then be like, okay, well, then obviously you're not reading the same Bible I am or whatever, right? We get pigeonholed into a particular way of answering a question, which essentially any sign out there or any position I put out on social media or whatever automatically tells you everything you need to know about me based on one answer. But instead of answering the question, yes or no, I would just simply ask the person, it sounds like a really important question to you. Why is that an important question for you to know? Why, is, why do you care so much about what I think about this subject? You see, I'm trying to get at the heart of the individual. If I know the motivation behind why they're asking, why this particular subject is so important to them, then I can know the heart from where that question arises. Do they really want to know what I think? Are they more interested in telling me what they think? So I just ask them, what do you think about it? And as I begin to enter into dialogue on any particular issue that's out there, we have dialogue, and usually it's civil, and at the end of the conversations, we still might not agree with one another, but at least we now know the motivation and the heart behind these particular beliefs that we carry. And so there was a, uh, there was a funny, uh, I guess it wasn't a meme, but it was, uh, I'm in a group chat with some people I went to college with, and someone put, this is what social media is all about. And it was a post, and it was just a fake post, and it says, I prefer oranges over mangoes. And the person's response under it was, what do you have against mangoes? Why aren't you including strawberries and coconuts and bananas? Like, why are you excluding all of them? Do you hate, why do you hate mangoes so much? And it's just like telling us how social media works. A simple statement arouses so many different emotions in people. But I understand when I'm being set up for any of these cultural wars or particular hot-button issues, and I want to be understanding and respectful of other people's views, and so I try to get at the heart of the issue itself. So when it comes to Jesus, and they're asking him what they should do about what is going on, let's see how Jesus responds, starting back in verse 6. They were using this as a question in order to have a trap, to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We don't know what was written on the ground. It must have been something so powerful or moving to where it began to disarm the people that were there, that were wanting a scene, were wanting Jesus to respond a particular way. But we don't know what it was. And starting in verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. 
Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. And that's where a lot of people stop. You see, Jesus is all about love. He's all about freedom. He knows knows all the situations that we're in. He's not going to be judgmental towards us. Jesus is all about love. Live your life however you want to live. You see how Jesus responded to the person that was kind of indulged? He didn't shame. He didn't put any judgment on her. But you see, Jesus understood that she was in the wrong. And he knew that she was in the wrong. The person's behavior clearly was in the wrong and was against God's intentions. And so was the man that would have been with her. But the Pharisees' argument and their justification just seemed to fall apart because what they were wanting didn't happen. And now it's just Jesus and the woman with the crowds, with the stones, leaving the scene, and it's just Jesus with the woman. And he says, go and leave your life of sin. It's clear that Jesus is restoring this woman. He breaks down all the defenses of all that she might have been experiencing. Is this person going to be judgmental and hateful towards me? Is he wanting to kill me? I mean, think about it from the woman's perspective. She's being dragged in front of all of her peers, people that she grew up with, people that she knew, and she was being humiliated in front of everybody. She was clearly in the wrong, and again, so was the man that was with her. But Jesus disarms the whole situation, and now it's just her and him together, alone, And he says these words to her. Sometimes I tell parents who are raising teenagers this, and I am realizing this more and more as I am raising a teenager and two preteens, that chances are good when you give a lecture to your kids, chances are they already know what you think about it before you tell them. In fact, when you want them to do something 99.9% of the time and they don't, and you start to reiterate and rehash the point with them over and over again, you know that they know what you know because they say, I know, I know, they do know. Did Jesus really need to go and rehash her sin with her and tell her how she had screwed up and how she was wrong? You know, this isn't what God wants from you. You know, if you would just be a little bit more cautious, you know, if you wouldn't put yourself in these situations, he doesn't rehash the point with the woman. This Jewish woman would have known the law. There's no reason why the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have brought a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish person there, because There's no penalty of death for for those people. These are the God's laws for God's people. And so 99.9% of the chance this woman is already knowing that she messed up. She didn't need to have it rehashed and held over her head either. And Jesus knew that too. Wouldn't it be better for this woman to experience a little bit of grace and love in the fact that she knew that she was in the wrong? Jesus knew she was in the wrong. Everybody that was there knew she was in the wrong. But yet Jesus restored her and loved her and met her where she was at. He didn't move away from truth, 
But he met this woman with grace and compassion first before speaking the truth. You see, there's nothing that's going to separate us from the love of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, the Apostle Paul says, For I am convinced that neither life, neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is all about love, and he's all about restoration, and it comes with the expectations that we will fall and live our lives within the guidelines. We'll fall within the guidelines that he has given to us. His love is not dependent on us meeting those expectations 100% of the time, because if it were, then that would mean that Jesus' love for us would be conditional. And in fact, we know that his love is unconditional, that there's nothing that we can ever do to earn his love. There's nothing that we can ever do that's going to eliminate his love for us. His love is dependent on him, not us. But we still decide to live our lives the best way we can because it honors God and the grace that he has given to us. So the question basically is, how are we doing with all of that? How easy is it for us to lead out of grace and compassion and love rather than truth and judgment? I'll tell you, for me, it's easy. It's hard to hear this because I know where I tend to falter. It's very easy for me to focus on the truth. And then, yeah, compassion and grace, that'll come a little bit later. You know, it's fine. So it's something that I need to be challenged with as well. But how are you doing today in your conversations with a seemingly more and more polarized society? How are you doing on social media? I read your posts. Don't think that I'm not out there reading your posts. I know what you're writing on Facebook. I don't have Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or any of those other evil... No, uh... The, those, other, uh, those other programs or whatever. But I see what's being posted on uh, public rights. You know, I see what's being posted on uh, different conversations. I know what's being said by people here, by people in our community. And I would just want to encourage all of you, you can't write a dissertation for what you believe on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. So your simple statements out there that have no explanation to it, that you have thought through, that you are passionate about, I'm probably just telling you that your posts typically are unhelpful. But I know that you're passionate about those things. I want to encourage you to say, look, we don't want to water down the truth. And at the same time, Jesus didn't water down the truth, but he led with compassion, grace, and understanding first. And that's a position I think that all of us can enter into when it comes to any topic that is hot within our community or any kind of polarizing cultural war issue as well. We don't enter into conversations to prove that other people are wrong, but we enter into conversations to have conversations civilly. I want to close with this, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, or mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. How are we doing with the humbly lately? How are we doing with the humbly lately? Again, these are difficult 
situations and certainly through this example of Jesus with this woman who was in the wrong, we also recognize that there was a whole lot that was also going on at that time as well. But how we can enter into love and grace to this world and also lead with truth after we have those conversations. So next week, our wonderful Tony Weedle that's running sound right now is going to be giving our sermon. He is one of our former church chairs of our leadership team and once a chair, always a chair. And uh, once a leadership team member, always a leadership team member. So we're grateful to hear what God has placed on his heart as well, where he is going to also begin talking about grace and truth as well. Continue to pray for me and uh, Lynn uh, and for the rest of the delegation who are going to be attending the Kansas City annual meeting, ministerial meeting, and uh, annual meeting. Uh, where we're going to make decisions and have discussions surrounding important issues that are facing our denomination and people in our denomination as well. So please, please pray, please, please, please pray for us as we enter into those conversations this week. Let's pray. God, thank you again that you uh, don't leave us where we're at, but that you take us to where we need to be. Thank you that you are full of grace, compassion, and love. Thank you that we have your guidelines, your laws, and your stipulations to be able to keep us safe, to be able to experience you, and to keep us from harm. So God, you love us so much that you want us to know what you desire in our lives, and so help us to be able to be faithful in our walk with you each day. Let every conversation that we have be seasoned with salt, and help us to lead in more with grace and compassion and mercy, especially as we encounter those people in our lives that, um, that need it. And so help us to be good Christians in your hands and feet. We love you and we praise you. Amen.